0: episode of the 21st Folio, a podcast about Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. I'm your host, Alex mm-hmm. Heaney, and today we have two guests, Noemi Berkowitz, Hi. and Mary Angela Rowe. Hello. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Almeida's production of Richard II starring Simon Russell Beale, which was uh, performed in early 2019 and has been recorded and broadcast through NT Live. Emma, do you want to give us an
1: intro to what Richard II is about? Oh, boy. Okay. Richard II is one of my favorite Shakespeare's, but it's not that often performed because it's kind of slippery. It tells the story of the downfall of King Richard II and his replacement by Henry Bolingbroke. In the first half of the play, Richard is king, and we witness his vicissitudes and his total inability to be decisive or to compromise with the people around him and in the first scene of the play he banishes Henry Bolingbroke from England for what seems like a sort of nonsensical reason for the first half of the play we alternate between seeing Richard make poor decisions and alienate the people around him and Bolingbroke in exile striving to come home in the second half of the play Bolingbroke has come home, all of the people Richard has alienated have gone to support Henry Bolingbroke's claim to the throne. Richard is imprisoned, and it's the long and torturous story of Richard eventually giving up his crown to Bolingbroke and being killed, arguably at Bolingbroke's orders. At the end of the play, depending on the production, we may be left to wonder if Bolingbroke will preside over any more stability than Richard left behind. Is that a little too 5,000 feet?
0: I think it's okay. I think the other key thing is it's the first play in the the first tetralogy of The Hollow Crown mm-hmm. um which is so it's it's the play that precedes The Henry IV part 1, Henry IV part 2 and Henry Henry V and Bolingbroke becomes Henry IV. Mm-hmm. And so in this production so the Almeida Theater, we've done a few we've done at least one episode on a production there before we did the king lear with um jonathan price but it's a small kind of like black box theater in london it's a pretty intimate space and this production was directed by joe hill gibbons i've never seen any of his stuff before but apparently he's known for doing like pretty wacky things with shakespeare like he did measure for measure with a lot of sex
2: dolls on stage
1: i
0: read
2: that too i would have rather seen that
0: oh how do you really feel (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but I guess like the thing about this production is it's severely pared down. It's only ninety minutes, no intermission, and like Richard the Third is usually three hours. Sorry, no, Richard the Third. Richard the <laughs> Second is normally three hours. Although
1: um, we did see Richard the Third at the Almeida a couple of years ago.
0: We did, and it's a pretty
2: bare set. It's well, I don't know. Noemi, do you want to explain? It's sort of this. Concrete looking industrial box with a few buckets labeled water, soil, and blood, blood etc. I think those might be all of the labels. And yeah, it's interesting um, because it's very much this empty gray box, and aside from a few moments, there isn't much that's done with the lighting to highlight specific parts of it. So you're basically looking at this industrial box, the overwhelming majority of the play, with no exits and entrances, and all actors on stage at all times, dressed in basically what seemed like actor workout clothes.
1: And gardening gloves. Do not forget the gardening and gloves.
2: Gardening gloves,
0: very important. And there are only seven people in the cast, and everybody but... Richard in Bolingbroke plays like multiple, multiple parts mm-hmm. that I found impossible to keep
2: track of. Oh, okay. I, oh, no, I don't know. I thought it was, it was not only difficult to keep track of from what was happening on stage, but when I looked back into the text, I realized that you had actors playing a character, but speaking the text of a different character or splitting up characters lines are having one person who's playing a character on stage saying the lines of another character hmm.
0: yeah that happened yeah. and then of course they put the famous soliloquy that Richard has at the end of the play is what opens the play and then they also brought in Henry the 4th famous soliloquy from Henry the 4th and decided that that belonged to Richard the 2nd
2: yes the one about sleep yeah i believe that's from Henry the 4th part 2 Yeah, I think so. I remember, I hadn't read Richard II recently, but I remember being slightly confused and then once again searching in my text for it, and I don't mind that they did that really at all. Maybe it would have been interesting if they did more of that. If you're going to take something like that, if you're going to make it a collage and an adaptation that isn't really what Richard II is classically seen as, then I say go with that farther, but putting one monologue at the beginning and then doing it again at the end and adding another one from a different play is not that radical. And actually, I think that's interesting because (laughs) I was reading about this director and how he's known for his radical stagings, and I guess I can see how some people think it's radical because it's so pared down and uh, abridged and bare-bones But I didn't find it radical in its staging at all. And not to launch uh, directly into sort of a diatribe, but to do just that, I guess (laughs) I would say that, especially now, I have been working in German theater for a while, where Regie Theater, the director's theater, is a really big thing. The theater as the director's medium. And I didn't find this to be that at all. I thought there was kind of a concept for the stage and costumes but I didn't see much happening with the direction at all I don't know I felt like there were a lot of times when I saw actors who seemed to be wandering around the stage sort of meandering and doing their acting thing as if they were in an acting class and they were enjoying this text but not conveying it to us or not showing purpose with their direction. Main directing seemed to be, like I said, the concept. And then just sometimes, like... I mean, there was a lot with where people were positioned to each other in the space. Which we can touch on more. But I didn't think the concept was particularly radical.
0: That's why I love having you on, Noemi. You're not, like, impressed by anything.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, look, and I love I love blood and mud on stage. So by all accounts, I should have loved this production because, spoiler alert, those things are on the stage at the end. Well, not just at the end. From the middle to the end. But maybe it would have been more impressive to me if I had seen it in person. Maybe.
0: (laughs) I kind of doubt that. Uh, I I mean, I didn't find it that radical either. Um, I'm a bit mixed on the direction. I feel like something... It brought out some interesting... Ideas in the play that I hadn't really seen or, or thought about, but one might also, it's it's a fine line between whether that was the direction or whether that was Simon Russell Beale.
1: Mm, good point.
0: A little bit of both probably. And even when it did that, it was like, had a lot of stuff going on that was kind of incoherent. So yeah, it was <laughs> a little over 90 minutes and it felt like it was three hours.
1: Yep. Yeah. Um, Like, it's never a good sign where you're longing for an intermission. Yeah. In a play this short. Yeah. (laughs) Or even in Richard II. Like, look, this is a pretty dynamic play, right? Yeah. My biggest problem with the staging was my biggest problem with everybody in this production except for Simon Russell Beale, which is that this play is a character study of someone incredibly mercurial and this production was tonally flat. The walls are mm-hmm. grey, everyone is wearing grey, everyone is delivering sort of at the same level all the time and the lack of movement, uh, the, you know, the relatively, the emotional pitch of the play never moved for me except in the scenes where Simon Russell Beale was in jail.
2: Yeah, I felt very much like people were saying their words because Shakespeare is very interesting, and I have studied it, and I'm an actor, and I have diction. This one particular scene, there was this, uh, this character comes in, Love well, does not, in fact, who... come in
1: because everybody stays there the whole time.
2: Yeah, that's true. Thank you. <laughs> Very important, true, astute observation. A character, I, I, I couldn't tell you who because, yeah, <laughs> comes in and is talking about, to Richard, about uh, despair And, uh, what else? Let me quickly check my notes.
1: A character comes in
2: and is talking about callback yesterday, speaking about despair. And this character's entire way of showing emotion is by using so much diction and really (laughs) sending the words the entire time. And it stays at that level the whole time. And I would say that's actually one of the rare moments where you're somehow like oh this person is speaking sort of differently no one seems to be understanding the words they're saying Uh, they're they're just reciting them but there isn't so much connection now I'm immediately going to go back on what I just said and say not no one, there were some instances where I did feel like actors were really connected with the text but that was not in the majority of the play
0: yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I I mean, aside from, I think Simon Russell Beale was, is the exception to that, but, um, oh, you don't.
2: You disagree. I think he's the exception to it in the second half of the play. Hmm. I was not impressed in the first half of the play. Also, because if you decide to do Richard II as, let's show the portrait of this man as he's torn down, then I want to see him more kingly and petulant and childishly decisive in his whims, ridiculous decisions and he was scratching his left butt cheek the entire play
1: <laughs> I mean I, he, like, I guess you can play Richard II as like this fretful man but if he never if he lacks that majesty or imperiousness the fall isn't particularly striking Exactly.
2: Mm. And he mm. lacked it. There were still some things that were striking about the fall, but it just wasn't as big of a contrast as it could have been to make a strong impact, in my opinion.
1: Pardon me, I just felt like the Richard II of Act I did not seem particularly attached to kingship.
0: Well, okay, so this is an interesting question, and I think that's partly a question of how you read the opening monologue. Mm. Because in some ways, it sort of feels like then the play plays as flashback, And if you read the play's flashback, then Richard's, then it's a question of when we're seeing Richard, are we seeing Richard as Richard at the time or are we seeing Richard (laughs) reflecting back on the time? Because I guess for me, part of what I felt was he seems aware from the very beginning that he's on uneven ground. That, well maybe not the very beginning But basically as soon as he banishes Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray He looks like He knows he's in trouble But he can't stop Like he knows that he's losing People's favor but he can't stop Like because his view of the way Kingship should be is that I just Wave my hand and people listen to me And it's like He's aware of, That his downfall is coming But he is completely incapable of doing anything to stop it.
1: But I didn't feel like he couldn't stop, you know? Like, I sort of see what you're saying, in that you can play Richard II as this guy who's almost addicted to power, not in a Machiavellian way, but in the way that he can't conceive of any other way of existing. But I didn't feel that from Simon Russell Beale. I felt like, you're right, I understood him as a man who could see the end coming, but he just came across as helpless, rather than, you know... He
2: was never strong or kingly, and the costumes, and the absurd crown did not help.
1: I didn't mind the crown. I really objected to the gardening gloves. I found them extremely <laughs> distracting.
2: Yeah. Okay. I I agree on the
0: gardening gloves, but I guess, I think that I I think that the purpose, what the production was trying to do, and you can certainly say that it didn't work. Was I think it was trying to suggest that like it's almost arbitrary like kingliness in some mm-hmm. ways that you know because he isn't dressed in any kind of finery what what dif- what distinguishes him as a king is the way he talks and the fact that he knows people will listen to him mm-hmm. and, yeah. and that's why he's so easily unkinged by they just throw a bucket of dirt over him and it's like it's all gone and I think this is also a production very interested in, like, rehabilitating Richard because it doesn't, okay, <laughs> you guys are giving me, like, I'm crazy, but I think the, re- the reason I'm saying this is because I think, I- I've never seen Ballenbroke played as such a tyrant, like, he's usually...
1: The nice, reasonable you know, somebody...
0: guy. Yeah, reasonable guy, pragmatic you know politically aware and intelligent and in this he's like a tyrant who goes around killing people and that's when you first see the they throw the blood it's the blood thrown over people that he has killed on his way to kingship and as soon as he confronts richard to get richard's crown from him he starts freaking the fuck out <laughs> because he start, he starts to realize like oh, shit, I'm going to be now. in this position. Yeah. And, you know, when you see that scene with the mother begging for her son, he's like, I don't want to kill this kid, but I, I guess it's my job, too. And he's... It's kind of this funny situation, because in some ways, I think it's one of the best ways I've seen Bolingbroke played as far as, like, pre, as a precursor to Henry IV. Mm. Because that feels like the same character to me as the person who's like constantly freaked out that his mm. crown is under attack. Mm-hmm. And one of the difficulties if you p- try and put all these plays together is that Bolingbroke seems like a totally different person than Henry IV and like, when did he have a kid and where's his wife?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but then this Bolingbroke is kind of, doesn't totally fit this the pl- this play because... I mean, part of what happens is by putting Bolingbroke as a tyrant, then you start to to see Richard as more reasonable than just Mercurial. Like I think this is the only production where I've seen Richard's d- decision to sign finally, like, stop the stop the duel and banish people as Richard being somebody who is constantly avoiding um, confrontation. violence. Yeah. Well, and there's a line in there somewhere about about Richard just using words and not using, uh, I can't remember what the exact line is, but there is a line where uh, somebody says to him that he like doesn't use swords or he doesn't use violence. He just uses words. I feel like this production makes you look back at what he's done and instead of see it as like a really dumb decision, which is like the only way I've ever seen it done before. You kind of see he has a point and he's trying to avoid He's trying to avoid
1: conflict.
2: I agree with everything you said um, about the portrayal of Bolingbroke, but I don't think that that redeems or rehabilitates Richard so much. For me, this production felt like the folly of men just being played over and over and this sort of sense that nothing's going to change from one leader to the next. Definitely, you have Bolingbroke seeming really easily overwhelmed and there is a very funny scene with your favorite garden gloves where everyone is challenging each other and throwing down their gauge aka the garden gloves mm-hmm. and they're just they're constantly <laughs> everyone's doing it and he's freaking out and he's trying to stop them and it's pretty funny but that's who he is in this play absolutely he's easily overwhelmed and he sort of holds on to this petulant childish demand this entitlement to the crown. I particularly noticed this line where he's talking about my rights and royalties. (laughs) I was astounded. I really felt like I'm just seeing that yes, technically he is right. And Richard should not have taken away his inheritance from his dad. But like, Sweetie, Henry, not everyone has a big inheritance from their dad. Like, some <gasps> just gotta, gotta just do things without that. And he's just, like, demanding his rights and royalties. I'm like, Ugh, you're such a one percenter.
0: Yeah, I think he's so petulant that it's hard to understand how pe- why people are following him.
1: It's also like, I mean, there's that scene where he's confronted by his uncle And his uncle, like, Mm -hmm. physically intimidates him, you know, Mm -hmm. which I thought was one of the most interesting moments in the play, and I'd never seen that confrontation portrayed like that. Usually you see Bolingbroke, the sort of reasonable guy who's like, calm down, uncle, I just want my, you know, I just want what's rightfully mine. And instead, his uncle physically overpowers him, and you see Bolingbroke shrinking back into the wall like a cowering, Mm -hmm. you know... And it doesn't help that that yellow light makes everyone look sickly, and the way they've dressed Bolingbroke makes him look like someone who would be hanging out out, outside an off-license at midnight.
2: He kind of looks like uh, Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad. Like, in his, like, drugged-out, kind of freaked-out phases. Mm -hmm. When he's getting overwhelmed, you know? Yes. I mean, I guess I should clarify that it's... Part of what I mean by, like,
0: rehabilitating Richard is not that Richard is suddenly so great. It's just that usually he's portrayed as so obviously a bad leader. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And Bolingbroke is so obviously a better choice. Mm -hmm. But because Bolingbroke is so shitty, (laughs) it, it, it makes you go, well, I don't know, is Richard so bad?
2: Also probably because... You're like, oh, Simon Russell Beale, he's the lead. Cool.
1: Well, also there's (laughs) the fact that there's this huge age gap between Richard and Bolingbroke that doesn't normally Mm -hmm. exist. Mm -hmm. Normally they're like either around the same age or Richard is like a bit older, you know?
2: Yeah. Richard seems kind of like Lear here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They were like, (laughs) plus this production is unrelentingly grim.
0: Like, but more Santa Clausy. Because when he did, because when Simon Russell Beale did Lear, they made him shave his head and his beard, so he didn't look like Santa Claus.
2: Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, he does here. Yes, Santa Claus with an itchy left butt cheek.
1: His hand was always there. I mean, it was a little bit. I am an actor. Observe me acting. Which is not something I associate with Simon Russell Beale. Like, it was such an obvious tick, you know?
2: But this is what I'm saying. Well, I haven't said it yet, but I'm about to. (laughs) What you're saying now about this choice, about acting, the sort of irony that is present in the performance, and what you had said, Alex, about, well, maybe they're showing it through the lens of a flashback, and that's why he's acting like that. Okay, cool. If you're going to go there... Go there all the way. Break the fourth wall. Point out things that you did in the past. Be like, that was fucking dumb. Play more with each other. Play more with the audience. Because they didn't do that, and then when there's moments when they really let themselves be actors in a rehearsal room, like this completely absurd, like, cha-cha slide that the Duke of York did at the end while he was pleading for his son to be murdered, then I'm just wondering why the fuck he's doing that but if you'd been doing that the whole production if you're constantly playing with the theater and saying we are doing this in a box and we are theater actors telling a story which is what they are doing but if you take it all the way and you make it really clear and let the audience in on it then you would have achieved something else but by basically making it like a rehearsal room I mean, a depressing rehearsal room, but I guess rehearsal rooms are fairly depressing. If you make it a rehearsal room, and then you still keep up this fourth wall and try to stay serious a lot of the time, then you sort of cripple yourself. Might be politically incorrect to say. (sighs) But then, then it doesn't work, I think. Well, and there are these weird gestures
0: toward the audience. Every time Richard is complaining about the people, he, like, looks at us and then gestures toward us. And it's sort of like, uh, don't really know how to
2: react to that. But it's not enough. No, no. Yeah.
0: No, it's not. They're not doing what you're suggesting they do. It's just, I'm just saying that the weird points when they do sort of break the fourth wall are kind of strange. Uh Like, it's not clear what the purpose of that is.
1: On the whole, I felt that I spent a lot more of this time detachedly noticing the production choices than I normally do. I found, except in a couple of moments when Simon Russell Beale was the focus, which were incredibly immersive, I found that I never got lost in the play. I kept thinking, oh, let's think about the staging. Oh, Why have they chosen to do that? And then occasionally I would go, I have no idea why they've chosen to do that, and then would spend several moments puzzling over it and then would have to be like, Oh yeah, right, play, I'm here.
2: I agree. I felt I felt bad because I I don't know. I felt like my ADD was getting in the way or something and I wasn't being a good theater goer. Because it didn't draw me in, mm-hmm. and I did have that detached observation mode, and and I felt like I wasn't listening to the language or understanding it. And I don't know, I have been doing Shakespeare for a long time, and I usually kind of understand it, and then I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, I live in Germany now. Maybe my English sucks. But then all of a sudden I come back to the play, and I realize it's... What I mentioned before, the actors aren't aren't telling me the story, they're just saying the words for the most part.
0: Yeah, I think it also doesn't help that the way that the supporting characters are A slashed and B hard to follow. Like I don't know how you would follow this production if you'd never seen or read Richard II.
1: I went with before, two people who hadn't seen it before and, who ac- and who'd and who never read it before and who actually found it okay. But I was worried about that okay. as well. Yeah.
2: I had never I- seen a production of Richard II before. Oh, I'd wow. only read it.
0: Well, I guess my experience was when he's suddenly starting to seize John of Gaunt's property, lands, and movables. I'm like, it took me a second to go, like, is isn't this the same... We're in the same scene. What? What? What happened? And I was like, oh, okay. But I recognize these lines. These are the lines where he's talking to John of Gaunt. Mm-hmm. These are John of Gaunt's lines. Okay, this is when he goes to John of Gaunt's place and seizes his property so that he can finance his Irish wars. But mm-hmm. like, I was disoriented and didn't know what was going on. And if I didn't know John of Gaunt was like a big deal, I would have been like, <laughs> what is going on now?
2: Also, if you didn't know, John of Gaunt was sick and dying, because in this play, he's fine, (laughs) fine. and then all of a sudden, he's sick and dying, but he's still not really sick and dying, and then all of a sudden, you just have a white dude taking everything away and threatening this black guy while the life drains from his eyes.
1: Oh, God.
2: (laughs) I was was like, wow, what a radical choice. This is so (laughs) new. Never seen this in world history ever.
1: I mean, I've never seen John of Gaunt look so hale and hearty. But yeah.
2: John of Gaunt looked good.
1: He looked fine.
2: He did not look like he was sick and dying. No. But he uh, was sick and dying. I thought they successfully
0: successfully turned John of Gaunt into Margaret Beaufort, though. Yes, right? <laughs> He's like the Ghost of Christmas Past. Yeah, who's just there to prophesize about Richard's downfall. Yes. <laughs> I was yeah. And you're like, who is he and what is he doing there?
2: Yeah, which is a great tagline for the play and all the supporting characters. And what is
1: he doing
2: there? <laughs> who is he and what is he doing here? <laughs> is how I felt about most of the supporting characters. <laughs> yep. Unfortunately I didn't
1: want to feel that way. I wanted to really not feel that way but I did. Okay, in the spirit of not spending two hours bashing this production, what did we actually like about it? I liked a bunch of things,
0: but apparently I'm the only one.
2: No, that's great. I actually thought maybe you guys would both love it, and I would be disagreeing with you this whole time, so let's get into (laughs) that part. (laughs) Well, I guess the
0: thing that I liked about bringing in the, the monologue from Henry Fourth was it was a nice contrast with Richard's monologue about the weight of the crown, mm-hmm. and it was kind of interesting, to, because they were trying to draw such parallels between Bomber how Bolingbroke was, like, going to end up like Richard in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, not deposed, but constantly fretting or in trouble, and...
1: And not a particularly <laughs> good ruler, providing no stability.
0: Right. So I thought that it was, it was interesting to see his, him giving that speech, the uneasy lies, the head that wears a crown speech next to, um, Richard's, I wasted time and now time wastes me, Mm. which I thought was interesting. I think this is the, as I was saying before, I think this is the first time I've really seen a Richard II that feels like it connects with the other plays in this tetralogy, Mm -hmm. Um, like even that, the Hollow Crown movies, which were all directed by different people, Richard II didn't have the same cast as Richard the, as Henry IV and V. Whereas Henry IV and V had the same cast, mm-hmm. so it felt like a total like one minute Bolingbroke is Rory Kinnear, and the next minute Bolingbroke is Jeremy Irons, and they're like two completely different characters, mm-hmm. and they didn't feel connected, even though obviously they are. And this is the only time I've seen them. Where it's like, how did he go from this calculated, or calculating, you know, usurper to the guy freaking the fuck out? Yeah. And while I don't think they did a good job of showing him as a calculating leader in this, because basically he just whines and screams about and stomps his foot around about not getting his lands, and you're like, and why are people following oh, you? I mean, why is everyone so outraged on your behalf? Especially because. They're all wearing rehearsal clothes, so it's not like you're seeing a bunch of other nobles going, "Oh shit, he's gonna steal my lands too." Mm-hmm. But I thought that the second half then makes sense, and then er, like makes sense of why it takes Richard forever to die, and how it how that fundamentally changes Bolingbroke and freaks him out. Like I I was really not into Bolingbroke in the first half because I was like, "What is the deal with this tyrant? This petulant tyrant?" Mm-hmm. And then as soon as he takes the crown, I was really quite interested in him because of how he was starting to realize you know what it was like to be in Richards position and what was happening to Richard because I mean I kind of liked one of the things I liked about pouring the the, the dirt the saw the dirt over Richard was it was sort of like he was being buried alive and there's this idea of how He doesn't exist without the crown, and it's almost like he'd rather be dead than alive without the crown, because he's basically just dead or in limbo Mm -hmm. while he's still living.
2: It's true, he does seem very much in limbo, and I do think that that is something that this particular stage concept lends itself to, Mm -hmm. in that, you know, seeing him in this sort of state of in-between. And I also agree, I think, Bolingbroke, I think... Well, first of all, like I said, I know textually why it makes sense for him to be a strong leader, but I haven't seen another production. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I do think that regardless of how the choices impact the other characters, which is a pretty big caveat, Mm. I do think that he was portrayed really well and the problems that i had with not believing things that a lot of the actors were saying and just feeling like they were in some rehearsal i didn't have with him Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i really did see him as this insecure in over his head overwhelmed but believing he has the right to be where he is guy and i can absolutely applaud that I also thought there were some great visual moments with the light. I just wish they'd done a lot more of it. Because that is a way to transform that space. They could have done a lot to make completely different places and energies with the light. There's so much that they could have done. And they had a few moments when all of a sudden you just have the shadows of some people who are in the corner of the light, whose hands are against the wall, while Richard is in the middle, illuminated, giving a monologue. And you see these people around the edges, but you don't really see them, but you feel their presence. Mm -hmm. Which is something I feel like the play was trying to do the whole time. Mm -hmm. But this whole being watched and having every action in the public eye be scrutinized and judged would seem more threatening or high stakes, if it weren't people with their hair up in ponytails and grey rehearsal clothes. One way that you can create that feeling, despite having those costumes, because I understand those costumes are part of the concept, is to play more with light. You can play a lot with light, with tone, with color, with where it is, with shadow. And there were some great moments of it, but there could have been so much
1: more. I mean, I guess that's one of the difficulties with this concept because they want the space to feel uniform, right? Like, that's part of the point. And it just made me think, what are you people really fighting over?
2: What are you the king of?
1: Precisely. Kingship means getting to call the shots in a barren room. It lacks the the like the majesty or the holy significance with which Richard II invests kingship. And I guess that's part of the point of the production. That there is no real distinction between the king and everybody else, and that kingship is a hollow thing, hence the hollow crown, which gets picked up, yeah, you know. But it feels very barren. And the effect is not to make you think wow, this is all really pointless. It's, wow, all these people are really petty. Which Maybe is, like, not what I think this production is trying to achieve, right? Um, Do you mean the
2: production or the
1: play? The production. I, I mean, the play is unquestionably not trying to achieve that. That's, like, not what the play is doing. Alex is right, in, though, in that, like, this Bolingbroke was very, very different from the other two Bolingbrooks I've seen on stage in a good way. And I don't think we've talked enough about how good Simon Russell Beale was in the moments where he wasn't constrained by the staging.
0: Yeah, I mean, this production really did him no favors. The fact that he came out as well as he did is kind of like the miracle of Simon Russell Beale. Yes.
2: I felt that way starting with down, down. That's where the first down,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: the way he said that, Which is halfway through the play. Yeah. But the first down, I thought, okay, I'm with you. Mm -hmm. I see where, to what depths you have been dragged down to. And from there, I really see him... In the tragedy of this sad, foolish old man, in a sort of lyra way, but who's proud but has nothing left to be proud about, who's, you know, fighting against and accepting where he is, who's in this place of limbo, who's struggling and spends a lot of time laying on the ground, covered in dirt, covered in water, and you just see this completely broken down person. Mm-hmm. From that point, I really felt like he was doing incredible work. I didn't feel that way in the first part, but I did feel that way in the second part.
1: I agree. I felt, I felt like, just as you said, I felt like Richard the Broken Man was much more compelling and three-dimensional a character than Richard the King. I didn't feel like I had a sense, and perhaps this goes with to what you were saying, Alex, that if we see the entire play as a flashback, then we can read all of act one as just foreshadowing, and we can read all of who Richard is in act one as trepidation for who he's going to become. But that leads to a portrayal where in the first act Richard feels kind of flat, like the one thing that leaps out at you when you read the text is how crazy mercurial Richard is, right? Like, his mood turns on a dime. He, you know, he can't make a decision to save his life except when it's a bad one, and then he's all in. (laughs) And, like, I didn't feel those vicissitudes. I didn't feel that emotional almost instability you know? Did they
0: even have, did they even, like not just cut all of that?
1: I mean, they cut a ton of it, and then they made it emotionally flat, right? Right. It's like the essence yeah. of this character is missing from the first act. I,
0: and I think part of that is how much they cut. Mm-hmm. I agree with you that I found him more compelling in the second half, and I was a little bit, in the first act especially, I was kind of like, what kind of Richard is this guy? Mm-hmm. Who is this guy? And I yeah. was having trouble figuring it out. And I think I got the first, my first real sense of it was when he starts sort of like verbally sparring with John of Gaunt. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting the way that the the few moments of comedy that like that Richard had throughout the play, because I don't think I've ever seen Richard have moments of comedy. Mm. And there was something, I think what was interesting to me about this is that I've never really thought of Richard as intelligent. Yeah, good uh, point. <laughs> And that's partly because he's mercurial and he can't make a decision, although, like, you know, Hamlet can't make a decision. <laughs> but Hamlet is
1: an intellectual. like
0: <laughs> Right. But I think, I guess what was interesting to me about Simon Russell Beale's take is that you felt like this was a an intelligent guy who understood what was going on around him. He just was incapable. That That was sort of my senses. He just wasn't capable of changing it, whether that's because he felt this is my divine right and I'm not going to it would be beneath me to do this or because he thinks, oh, it's my divine right. I, I see these things are happening and I kind of think that they might, that shit might go down, but ultimately I think it's not really going to happen. So cross my fingers and like keep making the same bad decisions. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the only time that I've really got, a, like I got a different reading on how, because Richard II is a play that's mostly in verse and yes. Richard is one of the few characters who actually rhymes a lot. Mm-hmm. Except for um, where they
2: cut the rhymes, which happens often,
0: <laughs> but it's the only time that I've seen it performed where I thought, oh, like part of this isn't just, oh, he's
1: kind of got an airhead. This divine pardon, oh, it's not just that he's kind of an airhead,
0: well, yeah, kind of an airhead, but like who rhymes because it's his divine right,
1: hmm.
0: but that like he rhymes because he's got a certain kind of intelligence, and then I think that that kind of. Gets amplified in this production, too, by Bolingbroke being such an idiot.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, but if he has a certain kind of intelligence, it's not the the way it feels while watching this production. is isn't, like, kingly, authoritative intelligence. It's the casual professor. Yeah, but professor's never authoritative, language. right?
1: Like, that's part of the point of him. He's, like, jocular yeah. and teasing, and he, like, you know...
2: Yeah, but he has authority. I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, okay. But um, what I mean is that he has this sort of entitlement, this more majestic presence or something, that here is completely absent in his body language mm-hmm. and his way of speaking. Yeah, it feels like the the professor who still has a little bit of Yesterday's dinner on a sweater vest, maybe, but he's sort of talking about this thing that's super interesting to him. But it's it's casual, which is not necessarily bad. It just doesn't seem kingly. That was my read on it.
0: That's well, kind of funny that he his <laughs> you're reading of his Richard II is like Ben Wisha's Brutus. <sighs> oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> Who, of course, played Richard II in the film
1: mm-hmm.
2: and won of Oscar oh, yeah, for a it. Three
1: versions, anyway. Keep talking.
2: I didn't see that. I should see that. It's really good. Um, ben Wishaw's Brutus, yeah. but he also ben has Wishaw's like a pet monkey Brutus. in it
0: and other strange things.
2: Ben Wishaw's Brutus. Brutus is nicely dressed, from what I recall. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's true. I mean, I don't know if I totally agree with you about him not having any authority, though. Like I understand, like I understand what you mean because it's not the it's not as stark as I usually see it with Richard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's something kind of interesting that's happening in that in the first scene where Mowbray and Bolingbroke are challenging each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Which is, he kind of, he keeps walking across the stage and invading their personal space. Mm-hmm. And there's this way in which he sort of ends up ceding territory to Bolingbroke, who's like wandering all around the stage and taking up, like, it's like he's already taking over the stage. But in some ways, it doesn't totally feel like a a power move because it's like Richard's powers and the fact that he doesn't have to move and that he can just stand there and what he says goes. Whereas like Bolingbroke has to actually like make a show of it by stomping all around the stage in order to take over power. And I think that a lot of weight gets put on the line about such as in the Breath of Kings
1: Mm -hmm.
0: that you really feel like, in a way that I've never really understood it before—that like Richard's authority is really in his what he says, and the fact that we have agreed—and I think the fact that it's this barren stage that doesn't feel like a court—it's like for some reason we have agreed that what this guy says goes, and you know he says I'm seizing your lands and it happens. He says you're vanished and it happens, mm-hmm. and everybody goes along with it, and That's the true. sort of—and I thought that that. The production did' some nice things to sort of bring bring that out about the sort of arbitrariness of kingship and the ceremony of it without actually like there is an actual ceremony in the production because everybody's wearing rehearsal clothes. But you feel like but the ceremony is the fact that we've all agreed agreed to this, and we're all trapped on this stage together. And these are the rules that we've decided
2: and to obey. The ceremony is also reflected in the staging, in that in different ways at different points in the play, but consistently throughout the play, Richard is always alone or somehow separated from everyone else. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, he's not so far away, but even when he's observing a scene that he's not in, the actor is off stage while being on stage, so to say. Mm-hmm. He's at the back, but he's not with the rest. He's always sort of in his own place, but it's only at the end when he's at the complete opposite corners of the stage as the entire rest of the mob who's staring him down, you see that everyone has turned on him. And so there's these ways where he is alone that are shown throughout the play but are different because at the beginning... He's alone in a way that signifies that he is above the others in some stat- way of status. And in the end, it shows that he has no one on his side.
0: Well, and also the moment where he joins the group of, well, not beggars, but I think he calls them that. Mm-hmm. Um, once he's given up his crown yeah. and he's mm-hmm. now standing next to them, it's like it's very sad because you feel him like totally stripped of his identity. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That like he doesn't belong with them, but that now he's... Now that's where he is.
1: He has nowhere else to be. Mm-hmm.
0: I think the other effective thing about keeping everyone on stage is there's... It's, it's interesting that, like, Bolingbroke never leaves the stage because it's sort of like he can banish him, but he can't really banish him. Yeah.
2: He can banish him to be frozen in one position for 20 <laughs> minutes, which was <laughs> Poor director's guy's muscles must have director's version. What?
1: Poor guy's muscles must have been aching.
2: But also Richard's in that one part where he's sort of in this weird... Forward bent squat thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think some of these things are inter- are choices that made me go, "Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting way of thinking about the play." But then I also didn't really think that it totally uh, worked. Worked to get like, I'm saying it's interesting. The Bolingbroke never leaves the stage, and like, yes, that's interesting as a concept. But like, did it? How did that affect the story and the emotional read of seeing Bolingbroke hunched on stage? It was kind of like, what is going on? Why is he still there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah, there yeah. could have been, there must have been a, there, there could have been a more effective way of doing that, I'm sure. I think
2: there were a lot of things that people in the rehearsal room thought would be interesting in this play, but it'd be interesting to really cut down the script, thought it'd be interesting to change a lot of words, to make it more casual in the way of saying you instead of thou until the end when Richard starts saying thou again, mm-hmm. Um, and to simplify some parts of the text but not others, to keep everyone on stage. There were so many things that seemed like, wow, this was a choice, this was an idea. Just not sure why. And there was one language choice that I noticed because it sounded so contemporary, I knew it wasn't original, and I looked it up. Couldn't tell you the character right now, but I can look it up. The line is, in the original Shakespeare, Yea, distaff women manage rusty bills against thy seat. And in this version it was, "'Yay, even women manage rusty bills against thy seat.'" And I looked into the meaning of the original. It has to do with women who weave, basically. And I just wonder why it's so necessary. Okay, you want to stick with the meter, so you want to find a two-syllable word and then throw in some casual misogyny on the side. Oh, even women. (laughs) There were a lot of these choices with the language that left me questioning why because that wasn't just something that happened that was a deliberate choice that someone made to replace that word Mm -hmm. some of the other deliberate choices they made like adding in that sleep monologue i am down with i thought that was very interesting and like i said at the beginning they could have done more of that but any of these changes are deliberate choices and i didn't find myself understanding the reason for all of them at the end of the day i don't think just like adding in a little bit of misogyny because it was that way at the time or something I mean, your piece isn't a period piece. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's necessary.
1: It also felt, I mean, it's always easier to criticize than it is to praise. But to one of your points earlier, Noemi, it felt like the degree to which the actress could handle Shakespeare was really uneven. You, Noemi, you were mentioning that it seems like everybody is declaiming rather than speaking. And I don't think that was true for everybody. And in some ways, that unevenness made it all the more noticeable. Like, Bolingbroke yeah. was fine. Simon Russellville yes. was fine. And yes. that red haired lady who played a bunch of roles, I thought she was very good.
2: I looked up her name and I think it's Robin Weaver.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> she
2: plays uh, N- Northumberland. How do you say yes. that name? So yes, say there we go. So say it. Northumberland. She plays Northumberland. <laughs> yes yes that one right yes yes I totally agree yeah. I think she and Simon Russell Beale and the actor who played Henry uh, were great with their text in certain moments mm-hmm. did some really great work so yes three out of seven ain't bad oh no, well, feels-
0: John of Gaunt was good during his John of Gaunt scenes just afterwards True. I had no idea who he was
2: I thought the the son who ends up not getting murdered and getting pardoned, yes, was attractive.
1: Um, Thank you, Noemi. That's like a real compliment <laughs> on his Shakespeare.
2: Yeah. Ouch. Right. Yeah. Now, and the thing is, I feel I feel like a bit of a jerk because I'm an actor. I'm a director. I know how much work all of these people put into this production, and I won't blame the actors for for this because I also. Absolutely believe that they could have been directed, and it could have just been a deliberate choice to be part of the mass. You know, to be the Twitter of Richard II, the constant influx of voices that are just declaiming their opinions. I absolutely believe that could have been a choice, and I don't want to lay the blame with any of them. I I don't know why that choice was made. I think it was made across many different people, and I don't think it takes anything away from their talent I just didn't understand the choice within the context of this production Mm
0: -hmm. yeah it sort of feels like the thing that happens with Richard III is where it's like oh Richard III is so interesting let's make everybody else an amorphous mass that we can't tell the difference (laughs) between yes and like especially if we want to do Richard III in 90 minutes then we definitely can't let you know who Hastings is or Elizabeth or anyone else they're Mm -hmm. just people who have to be killed
2: (laughs) Yeah, I felt kind of Game of Thrones vibes at some point. Not in terms of the brutality and getting to know the characters, just in terms of, oh, there's a bunch of characters and they just are all dead now, I Mm -hmm. guess. Anything else? Did anybody like anything else?
1: Having the buckets (laughs) clearly, I mean, having the buckets labeled blood, soil, and water at the edge of the stage was like, these are Chekhov guns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that, <laughs> yeah. That doesn't sound like a pro. No, um, I'm, I'm, I was not actually annoyed by it. It was just like, it gave one two feelings, or at least it gave me two feelings. At the beginning of the play, it gave me the sense that like, there's trouble to come and everybody knows it because those buckets are in clear view of everybody on stage. And it also gave you a sense of sort of counting down, right? As these things got used up, it gave you a sense of counting down to something, you know, one buck, two buckets to go, one bucket to go. What's, you know, it lent a sense of inevitability to the production that I think was actually pretty effective hmm. because they were always in view and you could never, because the set was so blank and they were the only props, basically you couldn't not see them.
2: Yeah, I see what you mean. I was actually thinking it would have been interesting since the space felt like such a rehearsal space. What if it, it was? It, what if it were like a rehearsal space, in the sense that there are a bunch of potential props, aka in this case, a bunch of potential buckets—blood, mm. water, soil, and a fuck ton of other stuff—and <laughs> then you That's get to the label see on the, fifth,
1: on the fourth bucket.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Buckets four through seventy-two are <laughs> yes. unknown fuck tons. Are we allowed to curse on this podcast?
1: We are now.
2: Yeah, Uh, yeah, it's fine. And I was thinking it would have been very interesting if we saw the choices of, okay, Mm. is this going to be water, dirt, glitter, blood, vomit, pieces of grass, whatever else? But But I also see what you mean because... Because it leads to counting down, and it also, my idea would have been shot down if I were in the rehearsal room. I mean, the not the not the stage rehearsal room, but the rehearsal room for the play that looked like a rehearsal room, mm. because they clearly wanted to go as bare bones as possible. And I do think it was not unaffected. ineffective. Ineffective. <laughs> uh, what did you
0: think of the like the ticking clock that starts happening I... when um, Mowbray and Bolingbroke show up? Or is it, wh- is it when they show up or when they start fighting?
2: I see you're shaking your head. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, oh, something's happening. Cool. I can write a note about it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun for me.
1: <laughs> it's amazing
0: how boring this production was, considering how much they cut and how desperately they wanted it to go quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean... On the one hand it was a helpful hint as to how much longer we had to endure on the other it undercut their message of meet the new boss same as the old boss right if we're counting down Mm -hmm. to something presumably we're counting down to a change but part of the point of this production is that bolingbroke is just as incompetent if not more so than richard ever was yeah -hmm. so i felt like what's What is so momentous about this? You've managed to shrink this story down from a story about a kingdom to a story about one man. Because we can see that the kingdom is just in the same state of chaos as it ever was. Also, I mean,
0: the production, it's like 90 minutes and half of it is Richard refusing to die. (laughs) 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 Which, I mean, I realize this is a significant portion of the play.
1: Yes. But
2: it is not half the play. But it was in this case the most interesting half of the play.
1: That is true. That is true. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so also, what if this play a week before the premiere was three hours long and then they were just and they just slashed massive parts it's of it? Like, and oh, that's well, this under rehearsal. Is... We're cutting it. Yeah, what if what if that's why we don't know who anyone is and everything? Because they actually were gonna do the whole thing and then they were like, nah. It'll
0: be fine. Conspiracy theory. <laughs> I feel like if they really cut the everything that was under rehearsed, you would never see Act four and five of Hamlet. Oh wow,
1: no, fair enough. I don't know. I feel that I don't I walked out of I walked into this production with really high hopes, and I walked out of this production feeling like I didn't have anything interesting to say about it or anything new to say about the play, other than what they did with the role of Bolingbroke
2: here here.
0: Yeah, I mostly agree. I mean, I aside from the things that I said that I thought were interesting and made <laughs> me see it in some <laughs> new lights, I think it was not... Uh, I would say most productions that are really, really interesting made me think rethink things a lot more mm-hmm. rather than seeing one part and going, huh, that's interesting, which I felt like this production was a series of, huh, that's interesting, but not like a total... Nothing hugely revelatory.
2: Yeah. Even the parts that I thought were better than the parts that I thought were worse. The, you know, Bolingbroke and um, Simon Russell Beale. I didn't care enough. I mean, I could get a 15 euro ticket on Ryanair to London, but I wouldn't do that just to see Simon Russell Beale after having seen this and yeah it didn't inspire passion in me
0: yeah i mean i agree i think if this was the first time i'd seen simon russell beale i wouldn't be so over the moon about him like i think Mm -hmm. he's good in it but like i thought Mm -hmm. his Falstaff was genius i thought his king lear was genius but if this was the first time i'd seen him i'd be like yeah he's like a good actor
1: Mm.
0: i don't think it's totally his fault i think it's the production does him like a real disservice
2: yeah, and I don't want to blame it on any one person, and if anyone from the production is listening to this, which they're not, thank God, <laughs> then it's not about any of you guys as artists. It's just about a lot of decisions that got made together that ended up leading to this production that overall, if I had to describe with one word, would just be gray. Mm-hmm. That's fair.
1: And again, I mean, I think all three of us felt that this relatively short, 90-minute long production felt like a small eternity.
0: (laughs) It definitely took me way longer than 90 minutes to get through it.
1: Yeah. The biggest problem with this production for me was that it feel, it drags. The whole thing drags. And it shouldn't drag. A 90-minute show shouldn't drag. Richard II, even uncut, shouldn't drag. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uncut. <laughs> I see what you I see what you did there. Um, oh boy. um it's that time of the night, eh? No But Richard the second should drag. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I think this is maybe a good place to end
1: then. <laughs> I think this is our shortest episode of Twenty First Folio ever. <laughs>
0: Well, it didn't even make us as mad as like the Hamlet production that made us mad for four
1: hours, yeah, of course, because... like plays because... that plays that make you mad at least you can tell about talk about why you don't like them, yeah, yeah, they yeah. were just like, Ugh. yeah, it
0: didn't inspire hatred, but it didn't really inspire anything yeah,
2: which is the worst thing. it makes me feel like I should switch careers, <laughs> oh no. I'm not going to. I mean, maybe I will in the future if I miserably fail, or fail miserably, as a person who speaks normal English would have said that. <laughs> Damn it! All right.
0: Well, I think we're going to end the episode here, and and we'll sign off. But um, yeah, if you if you like the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review on um, whatever podcast apps you uh, listen to this on. It helps other people find us, and would really help help the show out and if you want to find out about other episodes that we've recorded you can go to 21stfolio.com, that's two one s t f o l i o dot com and you can follow us on Twitter at 21stfolio. and let's I'm gonna ask our guests to tell us where they can find where we can find you, uh, Noemi?
2: Hi, I'm Noemi and you can find me in Berlin but online also on Twitter at NoemiOla, that's N-O-E-M-I. O-L-A, where I mostly just post stuff about being bisexual and sports.
1: Live your best life. <laughs> and M.A.? You can find me on Twitter at LapsVictorian, where I also occasionally post about sports.
0: And you can find me on Twitter at B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E, where I definitely don't post about sports. But I do post extremely obscure Shakespeare jokes. Yes. It's true. <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode, and we'll be back soon, hopefully. Ciao. Bye. Bye.